We don't know a lot about Bach's personal life, but we know his first wife, Maria, died in 1720. And cellists have long supposed the grief-stricken Johann Sebastian Bach wrote the D minor cello suite in response to her sudden and unexpected passing while he was vacationing away from home at the time. He returned to find her already buried, and this is the tragedy we hear in the second solo cello suite. But today we're talking about the Chaconne for violin solo. It's part of the second partita. It's also dated 1720, and it's in the same key, D minor. A lot of coincidences here. What's going on? Let's find out. Welcome back to Accelerando. I'm Paula Tuttle, and this week, we're talking about The Violin Chaconne by J.S. Bach. Violinists, like cellists, have laid claim to the darkest time in Bach's life when he would write the most stirring works in response to his grief. Bach was a church musician. He wrote a tremendous amount of religious music, sometimes a new cantata every week. But he also wrote a lot of secular instrumental music, as if he was writing a method of how to master the instruments. The six cello suites are one such example. And so is the well-tempered clavier and the two and three part inventions for keyboard. For the violin, he wrote six partitas and sonatas. The chaconne is the last movement of the second partita, and it's a massive work. It's just as long as the other movements combined. 15 minutes, the longest movement for violin by the composer. Some violinists insist that the backstory must be told to any student studying the piece in order for them to fully digest the gravity of the situation. Personally, I don't think any masterpiece needs a backstory. If you sent a recording of the Chaconne into space or for another world to hear, does the backstory of his wife's death give more meaning? It's already a huge monument to the human race. It's been called a tombeau in the memory of Bach's first wife, but it's also been contested and debunked. And who can really say what went on in the great composer's mind? And do you think that he would mind us attributing the masterpiece in such a way? This chaconne has been transcribed over 200 times. Brahms wrote it for left hand alone. Schumann and Mendelssohn wrote piano accompaniments for it. Busoni wrote a piano transcription. It's been transcribed for cello two in 2015. There have been transcriptions for two cellos, guitar, orchestra, and organ. Everybody wants in. And to violinists, it's a treasured work. It's also a rite of passage, the same way the cello suites to a cellist and the well-tempered clavier to pianists, the toccata and fugue in D minor for organists. Violinists learn it when they are accomplished, often on the brink of becoming a conservatory student, on their way to becoming professionals. It's not a piece for novices. This is the big time. Joshua Bell describes it as one of the greatest achievements of mankind. Likewise, Brahms said he couldn't imagine writing the piece. He probably would have gone out of his mind. Arnold Steinhardt wrote a book about it called Violin Dreams, Chasing Bach's Elusive Chaconne. And it tells how the piece changed his life, 
from when he first heard it as a young violinist to learning the piece and feeling it was never ready or finished his whole career. At one point, he played the piece at Maria Bach's grave in Cawthon. The book includes a CD of his latest recording of the Chaconne. The manuscript for the Chaconne is often framed in violinist studios, including Juan Jeremio's. A poster-sized picture hangs on the walls, easy enough to read while playing. Students are made to play with their back to the picture. I love hearing different versions of the performance of this piece because a lot of people can approach it in so many different ways and very radical ways, I would say. Some people try to go to the very original and traditional way of performing it with a full Baroque syrup, like Baroque violin, Baroque bow. Some people do a mix, modern violin and Baroque bow. Obviously, we have had a lot of recordings of full modern setup. It is an amazing piece of music, a gem. So if you're new to this piece, I'll tell you, a chaconne is a very old dance from the Renaissance, and it's three beats to a bar. It's similar to a passicalia, which commonly has a ground, a repeating bass ostinato. The chaconne came from Spain, and it worked its way through Europe to France and Italy, and each of them has their own characteristics. And Bach, being German, did what other German composers did. They followed the Italians, of course. In the Italian chacones, they employed a strict ostinato on a series of chords that anchor the variations. There's a characteristic dotted rhythm that emphasizes the second beat of the bar. This gives the chacone its heavy-hearted feeling. And this one, it's a dance staggering with grief. We hear this chaconne rhythm in the theme, but the variations each have their own ostinato-like rhythm as their variation. The second beat sometimes has the weight, but the music dictates the lightness in some variations. The stress moves to the downbeats later in the piece, the flow always following the harmony. There are two sections. The first is D minor with 15 eight-bar phrases. The second is in D major. So many people have analyzed the Chaconne. Did the numbers mean something? I never really went in for that, but maybe you like to see numerology in music. And maybe Bach did too. So here goes. The number four is prevalent. People say there are four bars in each variation. Others say, including myself, the theme and all the variations of it are eight bars. Early on in the variations, he changes the pattern in the middle of the phrase, which gives the appearance of four-bar variations. But listen to the music for the cadences. I think this is what makes the piece more compelling, that he doesn't wear out the variation rhythm. He changes it midway. Bach changing the variation mid-phrase gives the piece better shelf life. Like so many eight-bar phrases, it's a question-and-answer format. You're going to the store for milk? I'm going to the store for milk.
An understanding of harmony in music theory helps the violinist memorize the music, as well as hours of practice and years of musical study. This piece isn't for the non-believers. It's only for the true lovers of Bach. There have been some analyses based on code. Writer Helga Thion wrote her book, Chacon, Dance or Tombeau, an analytical study, and she speculates the church calendar is encoded in the piece. Numerology was popular in the Baroque era, so maybe Bach used some hidden numbers. We know of the BACH theme, and maybe Bach's brain was so big he entertained himself with these number games. We know Mozart would compose by rolling dice to give him a variety of musical themes. Thinking about these games gives no help to the interpreter on the violin. The middle of the piece has multiple three and four chord phrases that instructs the violinist to arpeggiate. The music here is written in a kind of shorthand. It says arpeggiate, but it's easier to know which way to arpeggiate when you hear someone else play it. And it saved a lot of ink and paper. Back in the days of Bach, paper and ink were doled out sparingly. It was also common for musicians to read all kinds of shorthand. And today we're spoiled, and the art of learning by ear isn't as common amongst classical musicians as it was back then. You've probably already heard this story. Joshua Bell, he played the Chaconne and a few other pieces in the subways in Washington, D.C. as a sort of social experiment. And it was an article for the Washington Post and a book called Fiddler in the Subway. Josh Bell, he took his Stradivarius and he played in the D.C. Metro for morning rush hour. He chose the Chaconne because he wanted to throw all the very best pearls at the feet of humanity to see if they were enlightened at all. The article says only one woman recognized him. One, Joshua Bell, a Stradivarius, playing Bach Chaconne. Humanity walked right by. The author of the article, Gene Weingarten, he says the article gets way more attention than he thinks it deserves. Because Josh Bell deserved more attention, got none, and his rather pedestrian article goes viral again and again. He won't even put a link to the article when he writes another meta piece that corrects all the information flying around about the article. He's avoiding the next 100,000 clicks. The irony makes the author crazy. Every week he hears from someone who put the story in a sermon, and now hears me putting it in my podcast. But I'm talking about one of the greatest pieces ever written in a music podcast. It just so happens that Josh Bell, who sells out a theater, but then gets overlooked because people don't know any better, well, I don't think I would have ignored him. But my point is, he picked this particular piece, and I think it speaks to the importance of the Chaconne. It's a monument. The Chaconne can be a reason for a violinist to become a professional. It's a pinnacle of the repertoire. It doesn't need accompaniment. It requires all the traditional technique to play the violin. 
It has four independent voices sounding like a choir, and the violinists can follow the counterpoint in a universe of depth and emotion, as Brahms expressed in his letter to Clara, all condensed into 15 minutes of beauty and suffering. The stamina to get through this piece requires both physical and emotional strength. You're playing alone, no partner to lean on. You discover yourself and your weaknesses, both as a human being and as a violinist. It's a lifelong friend and a nemesis. To some, it's the last movement to tackle after learning all the other movements in the six sonatas and partitas. And we believe he wrote them alternating. Sonata, partita, sonata, partita, sonata, partita. The three sonatas each have four movements. The first two always a prelude and fugue. The partitas, like the cello suites, are built on the dances like alamon, courant, sarabande, and jig. But they're not as standard as the cello suites. So then along comes the second partita, and it has this massive chaconne. Nothing like we see in the cello suites, the keyboard suites, the partitas, or the French or English suites. It's another reason it draws our attention. What's this? It's something different and huge. The chaconne stands out in so many ways. How did it get put here? A lot of things point to Bach's expression of grief, so lots of violinists might think of this being the headstone the great master made in homage, in pain, and maybe the guilt he could never rid from his soul. Bach's birthday is being celebrated worldwide March 21st through March 31st in a series of events called Bach in the Subways. We don't have much of a subway here, but you can create a performance and register it on the website and be part of the event. I did this in 2019. I played at the Heinz History Center there's a subway car in the lobby, so I felt it looked a little bit like a subway. As far as I know, I'm the only Pittsburgh performer to do the event. So maybe you'd like to do it. Check the show notes for a link or just Google Bach in the Subways 2024. Maybe we can make it happen this year. Share this episode with other people and plan a pop-up concert. And don't forget to subscribe at Apple Podcasts and elsewhere. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time.